Hi, I'm Sean Collins. It's interesting what you learn from making a podcast. My whole professional life, I've been a public radio producer, but I've always been one of the people in the control room or the newsroom or down the hall in an editing booth. This is the first time I've spent much time in front of a microphone. And I've learned that I say, um, hundreds of times an hour. And I know that that's got to be hard to hear. Sorry about that. Second thing I've learned is that people want to tell their story. They want to be heard. Yes, but we're learning that there's real benefit in storytelling, that sharing those stories improves the bond between people seeking care and the people who are taking care of them. And we've learned that humans are hardwired to listen to stories. The third thing I've learned is that there's a quirk in my vernacular way of speaking that has taken on new significance in the context of this podcast. When saying goodbye to someone, I often naturally say, be well. I've said it at the end of every episode of the Hear Me Now podcast. I don't know, it's sort of a valediction, it's a prayer. The circle of care that extends from a community of people who are listening to each other is vast. Listening to those we know and those we don't know. On today's program, let's take a little journey through the archives to listen once again to moments that celebrate listening with the ear of your heart. I'm going to start where we started this podcast, in the wake of the murder of George Floyd, after weeks of outrage in the streets of America and abroad, we asked two Providence caregivers, Jeremy Edmonds and Victoria Johnson, two black women, to let us listen to their conversation as they processed the response to yet another example of the public health crisis we call racism. The conversation included the profound truth that the path to being well isn't always comfortable. Here's Jeremy Edmonds. With regard to the situation of racism in this country, my ask of people, of of white people, is that they sit with being uncomfortable, that they sit in that, marinate in that, and understand what that means to feel that uncomfortable. Because it is only through pain, I have learned in my recovery, that we grow. If we were all happy all the time, we would never grow. We would never grow because you wouldn't know the difference between being unhappy and happy. You would have nothing to compare it to. As you sit in this uncomfortable feeling and as you try to not stay there and to reach out and to say to, to Black people, hey, I really understand what you've been through or I'm really trying to understand what you've been through. Please, please don't recoil if that hand is slapped. If if the person on the other end does not receive your grace, right. it, just means, it just means that grace isn't able to be received, not yet. And my ask of white people would be that they keep extending their hand. This is the only way it's going to change right. is if we all begin to forgive ourselves and each other. And that's where it has to start. Please keep extending that olive branch because that's really- the only way it's going to change. I think that's beautifully put. 
so like thinking back on it, you know, fellowship is such a huge part of the human experience. While I can't touch your arm and take away your pain, I can actually listen to what you're saying and think about a time that maybe I felt that way and empathize. And I think that this, especially what we're seeing in the news and people um, protesting is it's really just reaching out for human fellowship, just asking and giving the opportunity for people to step into our shoes because it's not, it's not an easy shoe to fit into. Um, And like you said, it, it is very uncomfortable, but your greatest moments of growth come from your discomfort. Because right where we are right now is a pretty tough place to be. Like saying, yeah. if, if we summarize, you know, hey, white people who, 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 who don't believe in racism, hey, be uncomfortable with what's going on. And I get that. That's really not a very uplifting message to, to give to anyone. Absolutely. But I think what, what I want to let, the, what I would like to leave as some of the last conversation we have is that, Again, it goes back to the gratitude and being able to change perceptions, be given an opportunity to talk to people about how we really feel, because honestly, it is going to be one conversation at a time. Mm. I can't tell you how many white people who care about me have called me over these last two weeks to say to me, I'm thinking about you. I'm thinking about your family. I'm wondering if you're okay. And I can't tell you how gratified I am by those simple outreaches of, I see you, I hear you, and I ache for you. It starts there. Have a conversation. If you don't know someone of color and you want to have a conversation with me about what I'm going through, call me. I'm happy to have a conversation with you. But find someone you trust, someone that you can approach, someone that you don't think is going to tell you what you think or feel is ridiculous, and have have that honest conversation with them and be sincere. And I honestly believe if the sincerity is what's first received, that we can do this. We can really make this change. Jeremy Edmonds and Victoria Johnson from the very first episode of the Hear Me Now podcast in June of 2020. You can find that episode and all the episodes that we'll listen to today on our website, hearmenowpodcast.org. The COVID-19 pandemic has been lurking in the wings throughout the production of this program. Two years ago, as we anticipated the change of seasons, we asked a variety of people to offer us strategies for dealing with the first COVID winter, when indoor gatherings with others would be discouraged. Remember, this was before the first vaccines were available. The tips for surviving that time of greater isolation were helpful in the early days of the pandemic, and much of it is just as helpful today as we seek ways to take care of ourselves and the people we love. Amy Dickinson writes the syndicated newspaper column, Ask Amy. One thing I think it gets a little confusing because on social media you keep seeing People are quilting and they're learning to play the violin. And you would think, looking on Instagram, that everybody has a sourdough starter happening. <laughs> and and I'm just not like that. And I think the more I apply that sort of metric to myself, the harder things have been for me. Yeah. So speaking for me, walk around, even around up and down the hallway in your apartment building. Mm-hmm. 
watch something grow. I actually am like Lazarus with the plants. Give me a dying plant and I will coax it back to life. I will watch it and feed it and trim it. And, you know, I think this is especially great for kids. If you can have something flowering inside your home, I think that's fantastic. Right, right. You know, the last thing I think is... And the the dawning of awareness of this for me has honestly led me into crisis off and on. We are in this for a very long time. And so it's helped me. It might not help somebody else, but honestly, it has helped me to sort of cancel everything. I realized that what I needed was not to keep myself on the hook, but to let myself off the hook. Yeah. And to just say, it's not, it's not happening. Right. You know, so often these days, I think of World War II and the Blitz. You know, I lived in England for about five years, and I knew an older woman there who had been through the Blitz. And um, it lasted for four and a half years, you know. That's disruption, illness, death. Constantly and falling from the sky. Falling from the sky. And I'm, and you know, I'm not saying we can all like keep calm and carry on because I know that people suffered and they, they, their mental health definitely suffered. But I do think that it, it helps me to think about other crises, world crises where people have been displaced dislocated for long periods of time. Right. You know, there's a phrase in Judaism, Passover, next year in Jerusalem. Yes. That feels like it echoes here, which is, right. we'll do it by ourselves this year, but next year we'll be together. Right, exactly. The world only spins forward. That's right. And also, I, I just think on some level, it's wise, depending on the temperament of your family system, to just say, not to slam the door, but just to say, this is where I am, you know, I think we're going to have to cancel. And if it turns out that we don't have to cancel, we'll do something scaled down, but let's just assume that it's not going to happen. You know, an idea that I've been tossing around in my head and thinking about suggesting to my family is keeping our distance from one another, but setting up a four or five hour long Zoom call where we put a laptop in everyone's kitchen and people walk in and out and you catch who you catch and it's like hanging out with one another in the kitchen. I love that. I think on Thanksgiving Day, it would be really, really, really fun and wonderful to do that and you can just see what people are doing i mean if if you weren't able to criticize your brother-in-law for opening a can of cranberry sauce and pushing it out of the can from one end i mean what use is there to have a holiday yeah exactly amy dickinson thank you so much for taking time to talk with us thank you sean i really really appreciate it and i appreciate the wisdom um you're offering it's it's really helpful Amy Dickinson writes the syndicated advice column, Ask Amy. She spoke with us from her home in Freeville, New York. 
I have always loved doing outdoor activities and basically anything that has to do with animals. Maisie B is 11 years old and she lives in New Mexico. I have to come up with different COVID safe situations so I can do things with friends or family members, something like skiing or sledding or even just going on a walk by your house or taking dogs on a walk with a friend or just your dogs. <laughs> it's a lot more COVID safe because you're outside and there's air flowing around you and it's just a lot more wonderful. And that way you can also have some human socialization. There's yurts that are up in the mountains that you can rent out and ski up to or go even just drive up to them or just take a nice long walk to them and spend the night there and just have a good time. It's always really refreshing and nice to be in the mountains. That's what I think anyway. Another thing is fostering animals, which has to do with animals, so obviously my favorite. It's really wonderful because that way you are doing a good deed and you are supporting your local shelter. And you get to have a kitten or a puppy or something at the house and you get a new buddy or something that you can focus your time on. And it's just always wonderful to have that kind of connection. And that's really all I can think of. Always wear your masks and make sure you hand sanitize and just be safe in general. Um, thank you for letting me be on this show. <laughs> Russia's war on Ukraine provided us a chance to reflect on how war trauma affects the whole person. March 24th, 2022. I've been sitting here with my laptop for more than two hours trying to find a way to encapsulate the past month in a few paragraphs. And of course I can't. You could talk about casualties or enumerate the war crimes or try to count the number of civilians who have been targeted. Tallying the refugees would be another way to put into words what has happened in Ukraine since Russian forces illegally crossed the border and began this war. Or were they simply continuing a war that began in 2014? That's for another podcaster to decide. Today, we're going to try to look at the Russian war on Ukraine through the lens of the whole person and how every aspect of an individual's life is thrown out of balance and injured in warfare. Their physical well-being, their mental health, their connections with communities that matter to them, family and church and neighbors and co-workers. Violence is being visited on the people of Ukraine indiscriminately as civilian targets are struck by artillery and missile fire, leaving whole buildings in rubble and flames, killing men, women, children, the elderly, the disabled, without regard. Clearly marked places of refuge have been targeted. Hospitals, theaters, shelters, these places have been targeted. They haven't been struck as some form of collateral damage. Russian forces are targeting civilians in a tactic that any rational person would have to say is terrorism. In September 1939, as another madman invaded his neighbor. The English poet W.H. Auden sat in a dive bar on 52nd Street in Manhattan, uncertain and afraid, he wrote, and wondered where the hell the world was headed. 
The terror and evil that followed Hitler's invasion of Poland is well known to all of us. It's well known to Vladimir Putin. And so we can be forgiven our own uncertainty and fear in the spring of 2022. Where the hell is this war headed? Auden sat at that bar and wrote one of the 20th century's great poems. It ends, Defenseless under the night, our world in stupor lies, yet dotted everywhere, ironic points of light flash out wherever the just exchange their messages. May I, composed like them of eros and of dust, beleaguered by the same negation and despair, show an affirming flame. On today's program, conversations with people reaching out to others in wartime, making connections, showing that affirming flame. First up, Ina Pashniak. She's a digital marketing manager for the Providence Innovation Group. She lives in San Francisco now, but she was born in Ukraine. She's been texting and calling her friends there throughout the war, among them Alexei Kirka. He works in communications in the British Embassy in Ukraine. We asked Ina and Alexei if we could listen in on one of their conversations this week. Hi, Alexei. Hello. How are you? Well, it's a very tricky question these days, uh, but I'm all right. Thank you. So far, so good. And my family is okay. We are now in a Western part of, of the country, in my hometown, which I believe, Ina, you're also from here. So I moved out of Kiev just a day before the invasion started. So kind of jumped on the last train, so as it were. Um, but I normally live and work in Kiev. I've lived there for 17 years. I paid my mortgage just last year. I was paying it for 15 years. Uh, so living uh, all of that behind now is really heartbreaking. Uh, but I really hope I'll be back uh, one day. Um, and the sooner the better, of course. Well, I'm very glad that you are safe, uh, uh, more or less. Yeah. I pray that um, everything uh, will be will remain safe. Yeah, let's hope. But I have to say Chernipsi has changed uh, very much over the last three weeks. Uh, uh, the, I have never seen so many people in this little town before because uh, a lot of uh, internally displaced uh, people are coming here every day. I was just walking today, um, um, running around to buy some medicines, and I saw um, various humanitarian hubs and uh, those internally displaced people uh, like lining for help or accommodation or some uh, food. Uh, and it's it's really heartbreaking. I think the, the, the city is managing quite well, um, is welcoming more people. Some people are staying here. Others are uh, um, moving on uh, to uh, Romania or Poland, uh, into Europe. Uh, but there's quite a lot of people who stayed here. I was in the first week, I was getting a lot of calls from uh, my friends in other regions asking for accommodation, uh, where to stay. So I 
I've been like on the phone 24 seven trying to find some options for them. But now it's uh, it's a bit uh, tricky because the demand keeps uh, going up. But the as as you know, our our city is uh, pretty small. Um, but I think the local authorities are managing quite well. Uh, people in the villages, uh, in the countryside, are also opening their doors to uh, to to our compatriots from other regions. So it is amazing to see this response on the ground. Um, in in here in, in in these regions in Ukraine, but also uh, when I see those stories from Poland, Romania, uh, Czech Republic, uh, uh, other countries, Germany, how people to people connections work and how people are trying to help, it's it's really inspiring, and I am so grateful uh, to all of them. Um, when it's it's uh, it's it's in in these dark times that we are going through, this is like a light of hope uh, for for the humanity. I would say exactly. And I would like to thank you so much. Uh, of course, I'm like very uh, worried about you and your mom, uh, and I'm yeah yeah I'm very uh, I'm praying for for your safety. Thank you, Ina. Thank you for reaching out. I'm, I'm really, really uh, glad to hear you and do say hello from Ukraine to your uh, colleagues and friends uh, in the U.S. Uh, but, and we know that the, that the people of the United States are really helping us right now. So we can't really win this war without this support. And we really count on you guys out there. And thank you so much again. Thank you, Alexi. Ina Pashniak talking last spring with her friend Alexei Kirka, who was internally displaced in Ukraine. In June of 2022, as state legislatures across the country took up measures to criminalize gender-affirming care, we talked with physicians and families about the standards of care for trans kids. The episode includes multiple bonus stories part of our Hear Me Now oral history project, including a conversation between 19-year-old Sam Pelger and his mom, Erin. Here's an excerpt. Where to begin? I mean, yeah, I I feel like I always kind of was a little bit of a weird kid, not weird in a bad way, just weird in a, I mean, I'm sure you can agree with this. I was always a little bit hard from the start very stubborn and like set in anything that I wanted to do. And I don't know, I just felt always a little bit distant from like, like what I was assigned at birth, I guess. What I didn't feel in a gender way because as a kid that doesn't exist, you don't know what that is. You're born into just whoever you are in the body that you inhabit. And like, I just felt very different from that. Like I just was living as like Sam, like no shirt at the swimming pool kind of kid, like cry if you put me in a bikini, like, you know, I'm sure you can speak on that too. Yeah. Yeah, I guess when you were little, um, interestingly, your name at birth was Samantha, but we always called you Sam. And um, strangely, just from the get-go, since we didn't know if you were going to be a girl or a boy at birth, we hadn't found out, all the clothes you wore 
were green <laughs> because people gave us gifts and, and didn't know. Yeah. <laughs> so it was kind of, you, you started out kind of a gender yeah. neutral child, um, just not by design, just happened that way. And having a name like Sam, which we always called you, um, you kind of inhabited a space in between things and gender wasn't um, front and center in your childhood. You just were Sam. Like everybody thought I was funny, which was great. Um, after I came out of my shyness, you know, and kind of became this in intensely quirky, weird person um, that I kind of am now, like with help from like teachers. I remember like Ms. Shuck. I don't know if I can say her name, but she was great in my fourth and fifth grade. That was kind of when I was like coming to terms with this the hardest. Not that I knew really what it was, but I just remember being in sex ed and being like, what am I? Why am I not with the boys? Why am I here? Like, why am I learning these things? Like, this isn't going to happen to me, surely. And I was so stressed. I remember you got, probably got a call from that teacher and was like, Sam, yeah. just like, I broke out crying. I remember that yeah. very vividly. She called me during the lunch break when they had been yeah. were doing, doing sex ed. And she said, just wanted to let you know that Sam seems to have been having a hard time and broke into tears in the middle of sex ed today and um, and, it, and didn't really know why and just wanted to help me be aware. And I tried to talk with you after school, but you were very, very private. There was not mm -hmm. um, sort of a way in, uh, but... Clearly, it was upsetting to you, and it wasn't until years later that I realized, like, oh, no wonder that was so upsetting to Sam, um, because there probably was a sense for you that you did not fit in these categories that you were and, supposed to be in. And at that time, like, there was no talk at all of, it was kind of weird, like, being the age that I am, because it's half of my life is set in the ways of like early 90s sex education and things like that and like health classes and like discussing there was no such thing as discussing trans queer topics um queer sex like how to have safe queer sex there was nothing like that it was like very old school you know like textbook um, which is wrong really very wrong and like i'm not even sure that that's changed but i remember like growing older and being in high school, it changed a little bit, but I was always, always, always advocating for myself and advocating for that change, but didn't really know how to, because I was so scared being like, really one of the only queer kids that I knew, like in my immediate circle or like at the school, it's pretty few and far between like growing up in Montana. I think it's amazing how far you've come um, in such a short amount of time. Oh, I think that uh, yeah, I think that I like to think that I am not who I am because I am trans, but that if I didn't go through those things, you know, that I would not be who I am. Like, I am kind of a type of person that doesn't talk about it a lot. But when I do, it's kind of big to me, you know, because I'm letting people know this, like, very personal part of my life and that is who I am and I think that I would be a very very different person I learned so much and I continue to learn a lot but I definitely 
feel very old for a 20 year old, you know, <laughs> um, it made me grow up real, real fast. And I'm, I'm very lucky about that because now I can be a kinder, more compassionate person that can like, you know, hear people more. And it was hard, you know, I remember like to bring it back to the care aspect of this podcast, like there were a couple nurses that I remember you kind of flipped your lid on. That woman kept calling you she or her, and I finally had to pull her aside and, you know, give her a piece of my mind. Um, and she, she felt terrible. She had no yeah. intention of, <laughs> of, of being that way. Um, mm -hmm. I think, you know, but there was just no, she didn't have experience, you know. You know, I've heard of a lot of um, medical centers just providing a brief, like, you know, class on or a lecture on trans healthcare um, and more importantly, trans healthcare for youth. That can change everything, I think. And I think that's yeah. something that is something that I would, you know, want to pursue as well. Just being able to educate people. It's not a lot too, you know, it's really not a lot. Just that little push. And then people start asking questions. People can start learning. People can start meeting different people, you know, meeting trans people, learn, hearing their experiences, like listening to this. It, it will change everything. I think that can happen. I don't want to say quickly, but I think that you know, I'm hopeful, even with all the pushback, especially this year, that there's a lot of good people doing a lot of good things. And I'm hopeful that that can, that can change because although my experience was fa fairly smooth, I want the experience of other kids and other people to be perfect. <laughs> Not that anything is perfect, but I just, I hope that, you know, I really do because that can change somebody's whole life. And I think that's really, really important. Sam Pelger talking with his mom, Erin, part of our exploration of the standards of care for trans kids. You'll find links to all those stories on our website, hearmenowpodcast.org. The work of being a caregiver, a nurse, a physician, a surgeon, a tech, an aide, the work is hard, but it's been made all the more difficult by the SARS-CoV-2 pandemic. In January of 2021, Dr. Zara Esmail and social worker Christina Rothens, then members of a palliative care team in Southern California, told us about their COVID-19 reality in the hospital. Here's Christina. and taking a few deep breaths in my car before having to put a mask on. I use a mask from the minute that I leave my car to the front door of the hospital out of respect for anybody that I come into contact with en route. Um, those, those last few breaths in the car always feel really precious because they're some of the last few I will take maskless for the next, you know, eight or nine hours. Hey, I'm Christina Rothens and I'm a licensed clinical social worker. I work on an inpatient palliative care team at 
Providence Little Company of Mary Medical Center in Torrance, California. I remember listening to the daily The New York Times podcast in January and February of last year, 2020, and hearing the horrific stories that were coming out of Italy and other parts of Western Europe, and just getting this really strong, impending sense of doom and bracing myself. And I feel like that's what we've been doing for the last however many months is just physically and emotionally bracing ourselves. My name is Zara Esmail. I'm the physician of a wonderful palliative care team and my team includes a nurse manager, a nurse practitioner, um, a nurse, a wonderful social worker, and a very, very talented chaplain. We were hit, and we were hit probably, I would say the beginning was around April, but there was this sort of, I want to say it was like a crescendo effect. It was a slow and steady build but it was never this sort of explosion that we were preparing for, like we saw in Europe, like we saw in New York and the other parts of the East Coast that were hit so suddenly and so painfully. So as a palliative care physician, I've been trained to facilitate difficult conversations with patients and their families as they face serious illness and try to cope with the ups and downs of the journey. The conversations that I have or my team has can be riddled with intense emotions, such as fear of the unknown, fear of dying, guilt about the past, unresolved conflict, and deep spiritual existential distress. I thought that having practiced palliative care for over a decade, I had developed a certain amount of resilience and inner strength when facilitating these conversations and trying to ease people's transitions to the end of life. As it turns out, I was sadly mistaken. 2020 has clearly been the toughest year of my life, professionally and spiritually. It has challenged me, toughened me up at times, certainly broken me to my core, brought me such an appreciation of each moment of life as a precious gift. It has opened my eyes to bear witness to the indignities of life, the frailty of the human body. It's caused me to experience human suffering in a way that I could never have imagined and allowed me the opportunity 
the wonderful opportunity to stand by the bedside of many who died in isolation away from their loved ones. The other day, I was taking a Zoom, well, rather an iPad, to my patients, one of my patients' bedside, so that the patient's husband could just be with her. He called and said he was really distressed. He knows that she's dying. This actually isn't even a COVID patient, but it's someone who, as a result of COVID, is in a PACU or a post-anesthesia recovery room with, you know, 10 or 15 other patients, no privacy, only curtains between them. And that is a direct result of the pandemic that what we call in the hospital is as crass as it is the clean patients. The clean patients all have to be put together because they're not a risk to one another. And so there's no privacy. And I'm coming in there with all of the staff for all of those 15 or 20 patients surrounding me to bring a husband on an iPad in to just look at his wife. He knows she can't respond. He knows she can't say anything, but he just wants to be with her. And so I, you know, there, I prop up the iPad on a bedside table that ordinarily is used to put food on. And I prop up the iPad and I make sure that it's lined up so that she can see him as, as closely as possible. And then I leave her there, the patient and her husband on the iPad so that they can have that time together. And I'm not gonna lie, we are just like work people working from home have Zoom fatigue. We all have Zoom fatigue in the hospital because one of the jobs I never knew that I would have is setting up these Zoom meetings for families so that they can see and pray for and give words of loving encouragement to their their our patients their their people and you know families love it it is such a consolation prize it is not what they want and they will take what they can get and so so often we do a zoom call it feels really meaningful and good for the family and then the very next day they're calling to have another one and I can't tell you how many times I think, oh, I don't want to do this. This is so painful. But it doesn't take long. It doesn't take long for me to think about those family members that I pass by on the way into work and how lucky I am that I get to be in close proximity to their family member. So I take a deep breath in my, in my mask and my face shield. And I tell myself, you know what? He's been married to her for 60 years. Imagine being married to someone for 60 years, knowing that they're at the end of their life and that they're probably gonna die in that hospital without you. And that's all the perspective I need to get my little butt out of that chair and set up that Zoom for that husband again. And I'll do it again and again and again until things go back to normal in the hospital. My team held two memorial services so that we could start to process our own grief 
and pay tribute and respect to each person, each human being that we had taken care of and that we had lost. As we rounded on our list, our growing list of patients with COVID, there were moments of silence. We cried together as a team. We tried to listen to each other. And sometimes we had no words for the suffering that we were witnessing. What I call the barrage of surges, the Thanksgiving followed by Christmas, followed by New Year. Our team by the end of 2020 had fatigue of all kinds. Zoom fatigue, COVID fatigue, wearing the N95 fatigue, family meeting fatigue, and death fatigue. You know, as a palliative care team, we are used to and can handle, I must say, gracefully when our patients die because we're able to quickly build rapport and guide patients, support our families. We do our family meetings in person and develop this bond with them in such a vulnerable part of their lives. But with COVID, everything was over Zoom. The best that we could do was connect with the faces, the multiple faces we saw over Zoom. You know, when you're in person with someone or even a family who's grieving, you can only focus into or tune into one or two of them at a time as they're grieving. But when you're on Zoom, like we are so often, and you have, let's see, earlier this week, I had 45 people on Zoom for a Zoom goodbye, 45. And you see all 45 of their faces crying and praying and grieving. We've actually gotten to the point where out of protection for ourselves, we'll initiate a Zoom, make sure we're available for questions, and then we turn the volume down. I actually only recently figured out the other day how to turn the speaker off altogether, because even when I turned the volume down, depending on the pitch of someone's voice, and you know, crying has a particularly high pitch, it would still come through the phone. And so I don't say that to sound callous or like, I don't wanna be present for people. I do and I am all of the time, but it's getting to the point where we're being traumatized by this ability to bear witness to more people's grief than we're used to. Zara Esmail and Christina Rothens, a physician and a social worker, are both palliative caregivers working through the realities of COVID-19. Their story was published in January of 2021. You'll find a link to it and all the stories from today's episode on our website, hearmenowpodcast.org. Our program comes to you from the Providence Institute for Human Caring, 
where it's produced by Scott Acord and Melody Fawcett. We have research help from medical librarians, Carrie Grinstead, Seema Bakta, Sarah Viscuso, and Heather Martin. Our theme music was written by Roger Neal. The executive producer is Michael Drummond. I'm Sean Collins. Thanks for listening. Be well. <laughs>